Well, as we're still going through different things and um, some positive stuff came up, I, a link came up on uh, one of the um, platforms that I work with. And um, a gentleman called Terry Timinen, and uh, very smart, I've had on, uh, I've shared conversations with on uh, you know, different uh, Zooms and so forth at different periods of work. And um, he suggested this article. And I thought I would read it out. If he suggests something, it's worth paying attention to. So here is the article. It was in the conversation, and it's five books that will change how you think about the environment and climate change. Came out, um, let me just get this right. It came out, hey, where's the date? There we go, November 15th, this year, 2021. We're constantly being bombarded with dire warnings about the Environmental and Climate Emergency Act. Act now, we're told, or face an unprecedented global catastrophe. But while the solutions proposed, solar panels, heat pumps, eating less meat, are no doubt necessary, they are for the most part unimaginative and uninspiring, and isolated from a wider system of beliefs, whereby they might acquire genuine meaning. The following five books offer an alternative perspective, in contrast to the simplistic idea that we all need to do is implement a set of technological and lifestyle changes, they offer a new way of understanding and relating to nature. And here are the five books. Gaia by James Lovelock, that was published in 1979. In his 1979 book, James Lovelock offers an entirely new understanding of the Earth as not just a planet on which life has evolved, but a self-regulating system capable of correcting any significant fluctuations that tend towards making it uninhabitable, such as increases or decreases in global temperatures or ocean salinity. Lovelock shows, for example, how the environment has contributed to driving down atmospheric carbon dioxide levels to compensate for a steadily warming sun. This has kept global temperatures in unhabitable range. Ultimately, though, the importance of Gaia lies not in just its bold scientific claims, but in the way it opens up the possibility of bringing together science and spirituality, the true and the meaningful. What does being part of a Gaia mean for us? That's the open question, which he finishes on that. Um, the next book, Should Trees Have Standing? by Christopher D. Stone, published in 1972. Good year. No law, Christopher Stone claims, can be created until we begin to challenge its non-existence. And just as it was once unthinkable for corporations to be given the same rights as people, the same is true today of living beings and ecosystems. Nature itself has no rights, only the people that own it or use it. Against this, Stone argues that certain natural entities, trees, forests, rivers, should be treated as people and granted rights. This radical idea is increasingly being implemented. In 2008 and 2009, Ecuador and Bolivia became the first countries in the world to recognize nature as a legal person in their constitutions. And in 2017, New Zealand recognized the legal personhood of the Wanganui River. Developing these insights in the 2010 edition of the book, Stone asks if the climate should also be granted legal standing. He sees this as a problematic, but not impossible, though 
it would require a legal system that goes beyond the current nation-state structure. Next book, Biomimicry by Janine Benius. This was published in 1997. Few would deny that technology will play a major role in achieving sustainability. But for the most part, we concentrate on individual technologies, such as electric vehicles or biodegradable packaging, without pausing to rethink technology as a whole. A significant exception to this is Janine Benius, who argues that sustainability calls for an entirely different approach, innovation inspired by nature or biomimicry. The book explores the practice of imitating nature to solve human design challenges and offers many case studies showing how biomimicry can apply to at almost every field of innovation, from solar energy generation based on natural phytosynthesis to cereal farming modeled on the native Kansas prairie. But perhaps the deepest significance of the book is the way it calls on us to view nature not just as something we learn about, but also as something we learn from. And in that case, we must cease to think of ourselves as the sole possessors of intelligence and knowledge, and instead also come to recognize the genius of nature. Next book is Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, published in 2013. Like Benius, Robin Wall Kimmerer thinks nature has a lot to teach us. But whereas Benius focuses on technological innovation, Kimmerer is interested in, in broader lessons. The overarching theme of the book is how to braid together indigenous wisdom and scientific knowledge, a project that the author, as a citizen of the Potawatomi nation and a professional biologist, has devoted much of her life to. Kimura's most brilliant example is sweetgrass itself, an aromatic plant used in indigenous medicine and basketry, whereas Kimura's biologists colleagues presume that harvesting sweetgrass always harms it. A biology student of hers designed a careful experiment proving something that Potawatomami had long since known. Sorry, I'm screwing up the name here. Potawatomi. There you go. Harvesting seagrass actually stimulates vigorous growth. What these plants teach us, then, is that humans are not outside nature, but a part of nature. And with the right approaches, we can enable other species to flourish alongside our own. Next book, The Climate of History in a Planetary Age by Depesh Chakrabarti, published in 2021. Addressing the meaning of climate change through the lens of history, Depesh proposes a fundamental shift from thinking about global to planetary climate change. Chakrabarti argues that while the world is busy solving a global problem, we forget to ask what the global means for us today. The global, he explains, is essentially a human-centric idea intrinsically linked to post-war globalization and modernization. The planet, by contrast, decenters decenters this human-centric idea, allowing non-human perspectives and interests to be taken into account. Most importantly, it raises the possibility of discovering new universal values. Shakabati also emphasizes that the acceleration of global warming is tightly linked to the anti-colonialist modernizing movements of the mid-20th century, such as Chairman Mao's Great Leap Forward. This was an economic and social program aimed to bring China up to speed with the Western world through intensive industrialization and technological advancement. 
Chakrabarti argues that it's only by overcoming our obsession with constant growth and development that we can rise to the challenge of ensuring planetary sustainability. Well, here are five books, and I'm sure one of the five, at least, you will have encountered or come across. So I hope this inspires for you to look out for these different authors, find out more about them, if they've written anything, if they're on YouTube, and at some point, stumble on the book. Thank you very much for paying attention, and I'll be putting out the notes on this article so you can find it and read it for yourself. Thank you for your time. Until the next recording.